Let's pray together. God, our Father, when we consider what Scripture tells us, that you so love the world, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every color, and that you loved us. And we sing a song like this that has this imagery of a hurricane bending a tree, of an unforeseen kiss, and it's an anthem and it's strong, it's passionate. Even the way the song is written, the notes that are played, remind us of the depth of your love for us. God our Father, help us not take that for granted, that it's you who loved us, that you gave your one and only Son, Jesus, for us in order that we might be called your children. And that in the life you give us through Jesus, we might live a life that draws others to you. So God, speak to us today as we open your word, as we consider our response as believers in Jesus to the injustice we see in the world around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 21, the entire chapter will be our text today as we consider responding to injustice. Now, Mother's Day and Father's Day are special days, and they don't always get a special sermon, um, at least from this pastor. But considering the situation in our country today and in our world, I felt like we had to address these concerns. Of course, my question was how? Racism, though we may have never suffered it ourselves and therefore may not fully understand it, Uh, we would agree that it's wrong to treat another person differently, that we're all made in God's image no matter where we're from, what language we first learned, or the color of our skin. Motivation behind that understanding to overcome the evil that we see. We need humility. Yes, humility makes life better. We need one another's of the Bible, as Scripture tells us repeatedly, about the one another's, love one another, honor one another, lift others up above yourself, serve one another. And so, as such, I could have done a topical-type sermon about that, but I prefer to get one passage of Scripture and help it give us a holistic view And so in this struggle that I've been in for a few weeks of how to address this issue from our church family and how to get down to the root of it, I was praying and I was reading and came upon Isaiah 59. I've read the Bible through before, I've read Isaiah through before, and I've preached Isaiah 58 a couple times. But then reading Isaiah 59, I knew I was at the right place. A scripture that could help us bring the Bible to bear on what's going on in our world today and help inform us as Christ followers how it is that we should respond to the injustice we see. And racism is a form of injustice. And of course, then I've got in my mind, how do I do this in a way that honors God? 
without saying too much of my own opinion, with using Scripture that will be honorable to that, and while knowing that surely I'm going to say something to offend somebody, but that's not my intent to make folks mad or step on toes. My intent is to study Scripture for myself because of what lurks in my heart and to share it with you based on who I am and trust because you know I love you and I love the Lord that I'm going to do the best I can. So my purpose today would be that if we can all agree that racism is unjust, is that we carefully consider injustice and how the Bible directs us to overcome injustice, racism included. Justice is about being just. It's about righteousness, equitableness, rightness. And injustice, of course, is the opposite of that. It's unjust, inequitable, a violation of the rights of others, unfair action or treatment. It's just wrong. And so that's where I settled on Isaiah 59 as our key text to help us look at what the Bible says about injustice and what God Himself is going to do about it if we ask. When we focus in on Isaiah 59, you could go back later and read chapters 57 and 58 in particular on your own. And this chapter 59 is due to the depravity of the nation of Israel, uh, their salvation and prosperity that would have come from God. And the prophet was going to speak words of comfort to them. But in verse chapter 57, he had to condemn their adulterous paganism, their false worship. In Isaiah 58, he condemns their hypocritical fasting, their empty worship going through the motions. And in chapter 59, he chiefly opposes injustice, their wicked hearts. But it's interesting as you read these three chapters that in each of them there's a prayer included. In chapter 57, it's a prayer that's not answered, unfortunately, because it's not addressed to God, the one true God. In chapter 58, it's a prayer that's not answered because of the hypocrisy of the people. In chapter 59, it's a prayer that's not answered due to the sins of the people, particularly their sin of injustice and the way they treated others. So if you'd like to, and if you're able to, stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. We'll read Isaiah 59, the entire chapter. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the egg of vipers and spin the spider's webs. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. 
Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. Verse 9. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if we're, it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears, we moan mournfully like doves, we look for injustice but find none for deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are even are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God. Fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts conceive. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance. He wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they had done, so will he repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will pay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising sun, They will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. May God add to the reading of his word. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, as you have your Bibles in front of you and have an outline in front of you, and if you don't already, that's either on version in the events or from our bulletin page. There's a link to that that it'll take you there to see these sermon notes. And keep in mind, it's right about 10 o'clock, so uh, if you're watching at home, our live stream has always faltered a little bit about 10 a.m. as East Coast Churches at 11 join in uh, streaming. So if that happens, God bless you. Be patient with us. We're doing the best we can there. But as we move ahead with our passage of Scripture today, your first point to consider is that God's salvation is available, that we must ask. God's salvation is available. We must ask. Look back at verse 1 again. It says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. 
It's rhetorical rhetoric, meaning it's like a speech. It's to make you think about what it's saying. And what is it saying? It's saying that God is strong enough to make a difference, and God is loving enough that He's listening. And what is it implying? That you're not asking. You're not asking. If there is injustice, and if God is sovereign, and if God loves people, and all those things are answered yes, then you must ask God to do something about it. Verses 1 through 8 is God addressing His people. And they've anticipated His divine action, but they haven't seen it. Remember, as I said, if you just look at the previous chapters, chapter 57, they were actually in false worship of idols. Chapter 58, they were actually in empty worship, going through the motions as their religion implied, but their hearts were not in it, and they're chastised for that. And then they look in chapter 59 and say, God, why aren't you helping us? And God's in heaven going, you just don't get it, do you? Your first question there asks, how have I sought God's intervention? How have I sought God's intervention in your current life, in your life situation, in the tension we see in our nation and you may be experiencing with people you know, the injustice you see from social media to TV to radio to relationships with folks in your neighborhood or in your workplace or even in your own family, listening to other people's opinions reading, being open. These things are good. But have we sought God's intervention? Seeking out what God's Word says to us. What does the Bible say about racism? What does the Bible say about injustice? What does the Bible say about loving others? Have we prayed? Have we humbled ourselves? Have we saturated ourselves with Scripture so much that it comes out from our mind, in our heart, and in our conversations. So salvation's available if we ask. The second point on your outline is that God's judgment is righteous, that we must confess. God's judgment is righteous, and we've got to confess that. We've got to confess our sinfulness because He's right, we're wrong. He's righteous, we're not unrighteous. He's perfect, we're sinful. And as you read on through those next verses there, look at verse 2 again. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden His face from you. God's there, but our sin prevents our prayers from being answered. God relates to people on the basis of their heart's condition. When sin controls your life, sin hides God's face from you. And makes communication with him near impossible. Look at verse 3 and 4, these analogies. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. So you've got hands and fingers there, but then look in the end of verse 3. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongues mutter wicked things. These poetic pairs putting together these things. And what does it say later in verse 11 that they mumble and they moan? Yeah, verse 4, no one calls for injustice nor pleads his case. They rely on empty arguments and then conceive trouble and give birth to sin. Injustice is part of life. And it's part of life because righteous people don't seek justice enough. Notice these analogies in verse 5 and verse 6. They use both food and clothing and animals to do that. 
Verse 5, they hatch the eggs of vipers. Okay, so it's an egg, but not an egg you'd want to eat necessarily. They spin a spider's web, kind of a nuisance. Their eggs, uh, whoever eats those eggs will die. Maybe people ate snake eggs back in that day in that culture. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. And then cobwebs are useless for clothing. I don't know about you. Sometimes it looks like people are wearing cobwebs when they go out. Not appropriate. But you know they're not going to cover you up. They're not going to keep you warm. What the writer Isaiah is saying here in verses 5 and 6 is these things come to nothing just as your sin. Move on to verse 7. Their feet rush into sin. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction make their mark. He's painting these pictures of a people who is about themselves and they're consumed with sin and selfishness. And therefore, justice and treating others with rightness and kindness and righteousness is not even on their mind. Look at verse 8. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They've turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. We look in our world today and we see... It seems like some don't know peace and they can't see justice and their paths are so crooked. But folks, we've got to be careful not to point the finger and judge others without considering a look in the mirror and considering the sinfulness of our own hearts, the unrighteousness that lives within us, the prejudice that may be there, the racism that may be there, the injustice that is there, even Within us. Verse 9, there's a change in this passage of Scripture. Verse 9, the writer Isaiah begins using first person plural. He says, us, we, our. So, whereas before he was diagnosing the situation and he's giving these analogies for what's going on and pointing to the nation as a whole, now he includes himself, that he himself is not outside the condemnation of the righteousness of this scripture. Because remember, what are we talking about here? God's judgment is righteous. Verse 9, he says, so justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but it's all darkness. And he paints these pictures of a nation mired in sin. Verses 11b through 13, there's six infinitive absolute verbs. And they've sinned by, look there in verse 11b, we look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it's far away. So, rebellion. The next one is about being hypocritical towards God and then turning from following God, speaking oppressive words, conceiving lying words, uttering lying words. That's in verse 13. And what's the summary in verse 16? So, justice, or 14, excuse me, is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes prey. I thought about preaching a sermon on truth. 
Because in our world today, truth doesn't seem absolute anymore. It's your truth and my truth, and truth isn't based on reality, but based on feelings. And where does that come from? We've got a long way from logic and a long way from righteousness. And we've elevated self above anything else. And we definitely see the stand against evil. Somebody from the other side prays on you, wants to destroy you because you're trying to stand up for good. But there's a change here that we'll get to in the second half of verse 15. Our question for the second point, however, is how have I responded to God's truth? In your life, how is it that you have responded to God's truth? What what have you done to respond? Personally, have you sought after it? Have you sought to understand God's Word, prayed through it, meditated on it, studied it, discussed it, when it comes to injustice and prejudice and racism and fear and hate, have you? We know implicitly that all police aren't bad. We know implicitly that all people of color aren't bad. We know that not all Republicans or not all Democrats are bad, that most people want right, most people want justice even though there are some that seem bent on the opposite. We have to consider these things based on God's truth, however. Let's move to our third point on our outline. And that's that God's justice is coming and we must grieve. God's justice is coming and we must grieve. When God looks around and As Isaiah is reporting it, nobody is doing anything about the injustice in their nation. So God himself is going to do something about it. Look at the latter part of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased and there was no justice. God is a God of truth. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of justice. Verse 16. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. God takes notice of the situation. No one was doing anything. Thankfully, that's not the case in America today. The murder of George Floyd touched off a firestorm in which folks have brought injustice to the fore and the rest of us who weren't paying attention before because we don't live around other races or we've never experienced racism ourselves have this conversation front and center now. And we can shrug our shoulders and say, oh, it doesn't matter. And I would say, personally, you'd be wrong. It does matter. Think about what Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's your key line. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And that's where we're at in America today. So your question asks, how has God changed my heart? If I look at our nation and I see that there's problems and my heart is stirred up and I realize God is the answer to these problems, have I come to God and asked Him to change my heart, to search my heart, to see if there's any wickedness within me, any injustice, any prejudice that I need to confess? How do I need to be more like Jesus? Humility, repentance, 
brokenness. Your next point on your outline is that God's redemption is certain. We must worship. God's redemption is certain. We must worship. Now, I told you my journey to end up at Isaiah 59. But the other thing I love about Isaiah 59 is it doesn't leave us hanging with a sin diagnosed and with us going, "Um, okay, we recognize that we're sinful. Our nation has fallen. And yes, we need to call on God. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And that light is the end of the tunnel is that God's redemption is certain. Just as certain is the sun rose this morning and will set this evening. God's redemption is certain. Go on in verse 16, the latter part of verse 16. It says, so his arm worked salvation, his own righteousness sustained him. And then you get this imagery we know from the New Testament, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He put on the garments of vengeance. Verse 18, according to what they done, he repaid them. That God is coming to set things right, to change the nation, to change the destiny of people. And verse 20 is a small little subparagraph within the larger argument. And it has two effects of God's coming. The first one is at the end of chapter 19, or verse 19, excuse me, the negative. It says, for he will come like a pent-up flood, and the breath of the Lord drives along. But then verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. God's coming. For those of us that are broken and humble and repentant of our sin, that God will come and work among us, redeem us, redeem our hearts, even redeem our nation. Now, I know you and I look around and we say there are 30 million people in the United States of America and so many different people groups, and so many different viewpoints, and so many different hearts, is it too audacious for us to ask that God himself would bring revival, beginning with us, and reaching our neighborhood, our family, our city, our state, our nation, and that the change that is needed in America would be one that comes not through social action or protests, but through confession and repentance and honest-to-goodness revival where the Holy Spirit comes and changes us. Which leads to your final question on your outline. And that asks, how have I turned to God in repentance? Have I considered my personal sinfulness? Do I have any hidden racism? Do I have ugly prejudices? Do I seek personal personal righteousness? And what am I going to do about these things? Look at verse 21. It says, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. So God himself speaking to his people, his people in Isaiah's time and us today, My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever. God is saying, if you seek me and if you know my words, my words that go into your mind will come out of your mouth. 
that Jesus is the only hope for our nation. Revival is the only hope for us because righteousness is greater than sin. Truth is greater than feelings. Love is greater than hate. Faith is greater than fear. Humility is greater than pride. Others are greater than self. And hope is greater than doubt. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you with these weighty matters on our mind. As we consider who we are, as we consider our nation and the brokenness of our nation and the hurt and pain that has erupted with centuries-old racism coming to the fore. And God, even though we may not understand it, I pray that we would seek to understand it. And God, even though we may have disagreement, I pray that we won't be disagreeable. That you would fill us with love, with wisdom, with patience and understanding. But most of all, Father, that we would seek our own hearts, confess to you any unconfessed sin, be broken and repentant that you might bring revival in us. And that we might be a part of the change in our nation, responding to injustice because of the way that you've changed us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.